This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, thanks for listening. Hey, I've got uh, important topics to talk about. Um, every city's had, have, had challenges over the last five years or so from impacts on recruiting, attrition, COVID, defunding, and others. One city in particular became a focal point for the nation, if not the world, on January 6, 2021, The Capitol Police and Washington, D.C. police came under attack at the United States Capitol. We are only a few months since the incident, and there has been criticism and fallout from planning, coordinating city agencies, federal agencies, and even the military in the lead up to the attack and the aftermath. People lost their jobs, but more importantly, people lost their lives, and several police officers were injured or suffered even worse in the aftermath. What's changed since then? What's it like for police officers working in the Washington, D.C. area today? And what does the future look like? Well, today I'm speaking with Salah Zapari, a former member of the D.C. Metro Police. He was first assigned to the 4th District substation as a patrol officer. And in 2018, he was assigned to the MPD headquarters to oversee outreach and volunteer initiatives, including the MPD Reserve Corps. In 2019, he was tasked with forming strategic engagement office to additionally oversee MPD's recruiting and marketing efforts for entry-level police officers. In 2020, Salah became the chief of staff for the Professional Development Bureau and in 2021 by Chief Robert J. Conte, Chief of Police Salah, to serve as one of Chief Conte's special assistants. Well, welcome to the ma- <laughs> welcome to Policing Matters, Salah Zapari. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's quite an introduction. Uh, in short, you've had some real impact on policies and decision making. Uh, Chief had uh, great um, confidence in you bringing you aboard and looking at the future of D.C. police. I know, like many other cities, uh, the legislative people got involved. They cut some funding and we saw what happened in the aftermath. Tell us uh, about the D.C. predicament from 2020 and beyond. Yeah, definitely. Well, so in 2020, um, in June 2020, the D.C. uh, Council uh, voted to cut MPD's budget for recruiting uh, newer officers. And so for fiscal year 21, MPD was not able to hire uh, anyone. And what that resulted in was a decrease in the department from about 3,800 officers to 3,550, a little bit less. So basically, 280 less officers and detectives. Um, And then, uh, you know, there's been over the last few years, a increase in violent crime. Last year was our most violent year when it comes to homicides in nearly 20 years. We've seen the tripling of carjackings, and we've seen just since last year, nearly a 50% or higher increase in robberies. So there's real anxiety in the city over rising crime. And 
Because of that, the city council has uh, refunded uh, hiring. However, it will take many years to, to restaff the department to where it was and to exceed that staffing. And when the council cut the budget in 2020, it was under the, uh, everyone was under the impression that part of that was to create alternative responses to police 911 calls. And any cop will tell you that they do too much, that there's things they're called to do that are just outside the purview of the police. Um, but nearly two years later, we don't, you know, if there was 280 less police officers, I would expect there'd be 280 mental health or other professionals on patrol. And I just can't point to where those are in the 911 system. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're referring to what a lot of cities are calling violence interrupters, right? And that could be anything from, you know, street contacts by, um, you know, civilians trained or not, um, maybe going to some low level mental health uh, related calls. Um, I mean, some funding's shifted to supporting choirs and uh, drama classes and sports uh, after school programs. Have you seen any that are working in DC? So uh, there, DC is experimenting with violence interruption. Um, but at the end of the day, and we are lucky in our city that we have a $19.5 billion budget. It is a massive budget for a city. And so we don't have to choose either or. We should experiment with alternative mechanisms for, for stemming violence. Um, but not at the expense of the responsiveness of our 911 system, because at the end of the day, not, violence interrupters, they may be doing good work, but they're not part of the 911 system. You can't call 911 and get a violence interrupter. And when people call 911, they expect a response, whether it's the fire department or the police department. And so if we really want to experiment with alternatives rather than police, they have to be first responders within the 911 system. And because we have not done that, now we're in this predicament where we have fewer officers doing more work. And that was not what anyone ever asked for. Right, right. And and DC is sort of, you know, uh, a microcosm of what's happening in cities across America, right? It's, uh, you know, all these things happen, COVID happens, George Floyd happens, we defund, we lose police officers for, you know, what's it take probably 18 months or longer to go from the initial recruitment stage to putting a cop, you know, in full capacity on their own, uh, you know, 18 months later, and then you lose all these people through attrition in the meantime. It's no wonder that crime goes up. But I mean, in D.C., we're talking about uh, a 50 percent increase in some violent crime like robberies and upwards of 28 percent rise in crime overall. Um, what are the strategies that D.C. is using with less police officers to to address those crimes? I mean, clearly, the violence interrupters are. Uh, seeking to do prevention at a low level over a long period of time. But I mean, what are we doing right now to decrease this kind of crime? No, it's a great point because people are scared. I mean, right now we had several, we had an active shooter threat the other day. We've had this notable inc incident of several um, um, armed robberies where, where these robbers took uh, puppies from people. And so people are worried, can I walk to school? Can I walk to work? Can I walk my dog and be safe? And, and we don't want people just to feel safe. We want them to actually be safe. And so in, in, in that context, we have to look at, you know, what's the landscape right now? And uh, the department uh, had commissioned a report and that, that report found that there's 
500 identifiable people in the city that are responsible for 70% of the gun violence. And so the department is really needing to shift its focus on how do we build strong cases against this select group of people. Um, And part of the problem there is that the average homicide suspect in D.C. has been arrested 11 prior times. And and so there's there's a prosecution issue and there's two prongs to that. One is. It, you know, officers are making arrests based on probable cause. Prosecutors are going to be looking at it based on beyond reasonable doubt. And sometimes that's not going to match up. But sometimes the onus falls on the department to, to invest in investigatory capacity to build those stronger cases so those cases can be prosecuted. And then on the prosecution side, sometimes we have some laws that are codified in the district that uh, cause diversion. So for age or other factors, people are diverted away from the criminal justice system. And it's the the idea behind diversion is a good one. It's we don't want young people um, wrapped up in the criminal justice system and then living with that for the rest of their, their life. But the problem with our current diversion pro- process is we're not diverting them into a program that's going to keep them out of that behavior. We're diver- diverting them back into the environment that, that allowed for that behavior to be created. So we're going to have to solve both, both of those issues. But at the, in the meantime, you know, while we try to beef up investigatory capacity and while we look at the criminal code and see if we need revisions, both of those, both of those will take time. We have this that set of data that indicates to us that at a certain point, someone who, uh, who's been arrested a certain number of times is likely going to be defendant number one in the next homicide. And so that's where the social services approach needs to come in, because that we can activate immediately, um, where we can look at people and see, you know, what are the upstream failures that cause them to to engage in this this um, uh, violent action? And can we uh, create interventions to get them into job training, to help them get a bank account, to help them get a driver's license, to help them uh, help remove the barriers in the private sector so that they can gain gainful employment? Because I think in the long term, if we want to see the sustained decrease in violent crime, we have to make sure everyone has an opportunity to get a quality education, and that quality education leads to gainful employment. At the same time, you know, not everyone is going to be programmed out of, of violent actions, and that's why it's so important that we build up the capacity of the department to build strong cases, and we make sure that when those strong cases come through, that they're able to be prosecuted. Well, that makes sense. And I hear what you're talking about, the prosecution side of the house. And I think sometimes the, you know, the community is not aware that, of course, restorative justice sounds good in concept, right? That we want to restore victims to be as whole as they could be. And we want to be fair to the offender and look at their situation and plight and maybe help fix it. Justice and accountability are not mutually exclusive. Uh, how do you get the word to the community that that we need to do better, that not everybody gets a free pass? You talk about 11 times of repeated chronic behavior. Um, how, what's your message to the community that these people need to be accounted for? So, um, you know, especially when I talk with neighbors, you know, as there's more of this awareness that uh, crime is an issue, 
um, people are asking, you know, why, you know, what has caused this, this to develop? And, and yes, there's a ton of factors, you know, we've just come off, we're at, coming out of the heels of, of, of COVID and 2020, where, um, you know, the department has less staffing, there's socioeconomic issues. But at the same time, you know, when you uh, pick up an illegal firearm and shoot indiscriminately in the street, you are putting all of us in harm's way. And, at the end of the day, if if someone is prosecuted and 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 sentenced, that is one less person that is picking up a firearm and shooting in the street. And yes, we have to invest in the long term um, plans to make sure that everyone has a pathway to gainful employment and good education. But that's a, a you know 15, 20, 25 year plan. In the immediate need, people need to be safe, feel safe, and know that when they call 911, someone's going to show up and help them um, if they're a victim of a crime. Yeah, yeah. And I want to get more into that and more uh, what we can do at the government level to help uh, law enforcement agencies. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly. Serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities, Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Salah Zapari, a former member of the D.C. Metro Police Department, talking about the D.C. situation. Uh, it's emblematic of what's going on in large cities across America. Have city leaders changed attitudes towards the police since the uh, crime increase? I mean, you know, we get the politicization of crime where uh, we'll hear about, um, you know, a silver bullet answer to all this. Uh, what's the city done to fill the gaps, um, you know, with, with those sort of uh, violence interrupters aside? What have they been saying about DCPD? Definitely. Well, I think that's the frustration, right, is that back in 2020, there was broad agreement that we can do better, that we can reimagine our public safety system. And we've done that before. I mean, there was a time when the police ran the ambulance service and we said they're not the best person to do that. Right. And so what people expected was that the council would take bold action and say, OK, let's look at what are the common calls for service that police go to that are never police matters. I mean, I think of when I was an officer, I got called for a customer dispute at a nail salon and the lady was irate that they didn't offer like a half gel service or some service. So I walk in there and I say, you know, ma'am, this is really not a police matter, but let me see how I can help you. Hopped on Google Maps, uh, you know, found another nail salon, called them up, saw if they offered the service and you know, de-escalated the situation and and had and got the lady, you know, the the help she needed. But we really have to ask ourselves, is that really what we want a police officer doing for two reasons? One, if we're facing this increase in violent crime, we really need all hands on deck focused, laser focused on combating violent crime. And two, any of those benign situations always involve at least one weapon, the officers. Um, and we know that changes the dynamic anyway. So, um, you know, I think the expectation was that the council was taking this action to then create, you know, allocate resources to create these alternative response mechanisms. But again, 
two years later, I can't point to any of those uh, alternative response mechanisms in the 911 network. And, and, of, you know, police officers know that they do too much. I mean, it's, it's just like on a medical call. They handle it until the fire board arrives and then they know to pass it off. And there's no reason we can't do that with any other type of common non-emergency, non-violent conflict or um, strife in the community. Um, and so, yes, the, the the city council has invested in violence interruption. Yes, they've, they're investing in other programs. But at the end of the day, in D.C., the police budget is only 2.8% of the city's overall budget. Um, if I believe we could reallocate all of that to, to some other program and that would solve our, our, our crime problem, I would do it. Um, but I don't think that's the reality we face. I think we, we have enough money. We're lucky to have enough money in this city that we can have a robust police response. We can invest in violence interruption and build a set of data to see if it's effective. And we can also innovate and create alternative systems in the 911 network to respond to mental health calls or, or dealing with unhoused neighbors or, or any number of types of crisis that really the police don't have the tools to solve. Right. So... Now, what's the what kind of relationship do you have with uh, the Capitol Police? Uh, and, and in particular, I'm thinking ahead to the January 6th uh, incident there. Um, were, were you working then? Did you know what the planning was like before January 6th? Yes, I, I was working then, um, uh, not directly in any of the coordination roles. I, at that time, I was overseeing our strategic engagement office, and, which oversaw our volunteer programs, our outreach, and our recruiting and marketing um, um, budgets. And, uh, but I was, at that time, I was actually a civilian director at the department, but also a reserve officer. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, as a department, we, DC is such a unique city. There's 30 plus um, law enforcement agencies. So there's a lot of coordination that uh, that occurs. And um, for sure, there was coordination with the Capitol Police and all the surrounding jurisdictions. Um, I, m- I myself was in the office that day. And as things started to unfold, me and my deputies, we said, we better suit up into our uniforms and, and go out um, out there. So um, there, there definitely is. I mean, the department continues to maintain its relationships with all the relevant players in, in the city in response to any large um, assemblies, um, protests and whatnot. Well, certainly it was a unique situation and hope, hopefully something we don't see again for another 200 years, um, if, if that. Hopefully never. But, <laughs> or ever, right. No, and, and not to make light of it, but, uh, you know, one of the biggest critiques was coordination, planning, intelligence gathering and dissemination. Uh, in other cities here on the West Coast, I mean, we are held uh from intelligence gathering, from cooperation with other federal law enforcement groups, sometimes in um, gathering really important information. Have you seen any bridges mending or gaps being filled to to strengthen the intelligence and the pre-planning ability for D.C. and Capitol Police? Yeah, I think after January 6th, everything changed, right? Like any big incident, um, it, it changes the the work processes of how we interact with, with other agencies, not just um, law enforcement agencies, but also all the other government agencies that, um, that interact with any big event. So 100% things, you know, I think it, we are still too close to it to really see what the long-term effects will be. But I mean, just even in the 
in the prosecution side after January 6th, you saw all this coordination between different level agencies to ensure that uh, people who participated are, were held accountable and are held accountable. Sure. Well, uh, you got a lot of things going on in D.C. Uh, what's your next plan? What's your next move? How do you hope to change things there? That's a great question. Um, I actually left my job at MPD so I could run for city council. And the reason I did that um, here in Ward 1 in Washington, D.C., the reason I did that is because I think um, in this time of, of, of rising violence and a real anxiety about crime, um, it would be beneficial it, on our council to have someone that understands the law enforcement um, um, system and network right here in Washington, D.C. So if uh, listeners want to hear uh, learn more, they're welcome to go to my website, uh, Salah2022.com. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I contacted you after I read your article that uh, I think the headline was, Nobody signed up for this and, you know, really struck a chord with me. And I think it, it resonates with other law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, there's some even worse uh, going through some trying times and they're going to have a hard time recruiting. So thanks for bringing it to the attention of the community at large. I think it was in the Washington Post. Uh, are you writing anything else? How else can we read about what you're putting out there? Yeah, that article is, is in the Washington Post, that op-ed. Um, there, there's uh, other articles that are posted on my website that I've either been interviewed for, and that'll continue to be updated um, as I uh, participate in more interviews and, and, and write more articles. And, and really the message that's resonating with people is that there is this middle ground, right? There's this middle ground where we can improve policing. We can uh, make sure that the police, that we cheer on the police when they do the right thing and the things that we need them to do, but we can also build the systems to hold them accountable when they don't. And at the same time, we can innovate in public safety and make sure that we're creating services in the 911 network that will meet people in their moment of crisis with the most appropriate resources. And that message resonates with, you know, residents, with activists and with police leaders. Well, that's awesome. Well, good luck moving forward, Sala. Uh, I look forward to, to reading more about you and from you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Great. Hey, to our listeners, thanks for listening. I hope you found today's show informative. And uh, let me know if there's something happening near you. People making change or making a difference in your community. Drop me a line, Jim Dudley at Policing Matters at PoliceOne.com. Myself or my editor will get back to you. And we're entertaining all topics and speakers that you want to hear about. All right. Hey, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll talk to you again real soon.